as I said, the last two Sundays were a Vision Sunday, so if you missed uh, either of them, please do check them out on our YouTube channel uh, or on our podcast, which you can find in all the normal podcast places. Really exciting and really worth listening to. So today, um, I want to start by taking you back to November last year, when, um, well, again, a group of world leaders came together for what was heralded as one of the most important summits in human history. I don't know if any of you can guess what that was. This was COP26, COP26, a global gathering on climate change. And as a result, the Glasgow Climate Pact was signed. And its aims were to reduce the worst impacts of climate change, which has been heating up the world for many decades and ravaging our environment and ecosystems across the planet. And sadly, many commentators concluded that economics and politics had still been uh, too high a priority. And a lot of people thought they didn't go far enough. So um, I went back through to look at what was agreed. It was agreed that countries would meet again this year to pledge further cuts to emissions on carbon dioxide in an attempt to keep the global temperature increase below 1.5 degrees. However, if current pledges are met, it would only limit it to 2.4 degrees, which is significantly higher. For the first time, there was a plan laid out to reduce the use of coal, which is responsible for 40% of annual CO2 emissions. However, a last-minute change meant the wording said to phase down coal, not phase out coal. You can see where I'm going here. Leaders agreed to phase out subsidies that lower the price of coal and oil and natural gas, but no date was set to do it. Leaders from 100 countries, which account for 85% of the world's forests, promised to stop deforestation by 2030. However, no one is too sure how that will be policed. And it goes on. It goes on. A lot of talk, but maybe people thought not enough concrete action. And I really don't want to sort of depress you all this morning. Maybe the news at the moment, as we know, is hard enough. But as you've guessed, this morning I'm going to be talking to us about creation and our God-given mandate to care for God's environment. And I know many of you will already be aware of this. Maybe in your heart you just sense, you know that you want to care for the creation around you. You have that feeling inside of you that, yeah, as humanity, it is our job to care for the planet. But sometimes I know it's hard for us to actually draw biblical theology into why we feel that way. Why do we feel that way? What does the Bible actually have to say to us about ecology, about a caring for the planet? So, I may fail, but hopefully this morning I want to bring a few ideas that will hopefully help us give language and expand our theology on this very topic. And you could spend weeks and weeks on it. But, uh, and there's lots of amazing faith organizations out there that just work on this. We also have our own Darren Evans, who's hiding, hiding at the back there. He is a professor of ecology and conservation at Newcastle University. So I'm sorry you've got the B, B team this morning. But if you have any questions, speak to him because he will answer it so much better than I will. He's shaking his head. I'm not having that, Darren. What would be a great thing to do is if you're here and you're thinking, I would love to think about ways that I can reduce my carbon footprint, Ask Darren, because he will, he will have ideas, switching to an electric car, reducing your meat, whatever it is, he'll have some ideas. Uh, me and Darren actually did a series of 
um, interviews, sort of chats on our church podcast. I think it was in 2020. So again, loads of info there. If you scroll back through, do go and look at that. So I'll, I'll do my best to fudge through. Uh, but Darren is the man if you want to know more. So why is caring for creation a matter of faith? Well, first and foremost, the earth is the Lord's and not ours. The earth is the Lord's and not ours. Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So if you ever wonder, does the Bible support conservation and caring for the planet? Well, here we have it before us in just those few words. The earth is God's. He made it. He thought it up. He spoke it into being. He sustains it. He gives it life. He cares for it. He made it and he said it was good. The earth is the Lord's. And so I think we need to reorientate our minds to that reality. The earth doesn't belong to us. We don't own it. We don't have rights to it. If you were to somehow dig up the deeds to the earth in Newcastle City Council's deed store. I don't know wherever that would be. It wouldn't have our name on it. It wouldn't have prime ministers and presidents' names on it or oil companies. It would say God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So it's not just the earth, the foundations and the framework, everything in it. It's, this is an all-inclusive statement. We can turn to, to Psalm 104. Because not only do we have a theology that tells us that God created everything and everything belongs to him, but we also have a theology that says God created everything to live together in harmony. This is a wonderfully moving psalm and it paints an amazing picture of the unity and diversity of nature that God put into place. God made the earth to flourish and complement itself. And so this morning I thought it would be only fitting for uh, such a wonderful psalm to be read by a wonderful person. So, Faye, where are you? Come up and read it. We're going to read Psalm 104. Why don't we give Faye a little round of applause? <laughs> don't go over the top, Faye. Come on. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> good morning, everybody. And to those joining us online, good morning. Psalm 104. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, and it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers are flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make spring gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. 
you give drink to every beast in the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stalk has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are refuge for the rock badger. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away. They lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships, the Leviathan which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face on the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice at his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and the smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Faye. Let's have another round of applause for Faye. Isn't that amazing? I have to say, I forgot to rub my, oil, my face with oil this morning to make it shine. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what a rock badger is either, but it sort of sounds a bit devious to me. But isn't that amazing? And it's, sometimes I think it's easy for us to think of the writers of the Bible to be a bit primitive. You know, we, we're modern and we know so much more about the natural world. But 3,000 years ago, the psalmist sat down and described the wonderful unison of nature and ecology. The mountains rise and the valleys sink. 
The springs gush forth into the valleys, which gives animals drinking water. Grass grows, which feeds the livestock. Plants for man to cultivate. God made a world that worked. He made a world that worked. A system of ecology that supported its inhabitants. Today I'm going to be quoting a bit from a brilliant book by the theologian Richard Borkham called Bible and Ecology. I really recommend it. And about Psalm 104, he said this, God's provision is sufficient if equitably shared. God's provision is sufficient if equitably shared. God created the world to flourish, but only if its resources were shared between all of its inhabitants, shared in balance. And sadly, we know that the story of humanity is that we consume more and more. We take more and more. As a result of the fall and our sin, we love to use things up, take advantage of things. And this just isn't seen in nature, but we know through broken relationships in our communities. We have to see ourselves as kings of our own universe. And so this morning, I want to take us back briefly to the famous story in Genesis 1 of creation. Many of you will know it so well. And I wanted to invite us just to look at it again through fresh eyes. We know how it starts, the wonderful words of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Such uh, wonderful language. God spoke everything into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. The sea and the land came into existence. He spoke every living creature into life, and man and woman as well. And so in the first three days, God creates the three environments that constitute space and creation, and on days four, five, and six, He created the inhabitants for each of these habitats. And actually, if you look here, um, the two two sets of three days are sort of written in pairing triads. And so you can map days four to six over the top of days one to three. And there's so many different ways they match. Uh, But one way, one interesting way, is that on days one and four, so if you see from left to right, days one and four, and days two and five, God creates, well, he does one act of creation on those days, but then on days three and six, God does two acts of creation. You could call it his Brucey bonus, maybe. <laughs> and so on, uh, on day three, the second act of creation, the, the Brucey bonus, is fruit trees. And then on day six, the Brucey bonus is me and you, humanity. And he says, trees to be fruitful and then humans to be fruitful. Isn't that amazing? And in fact, the likeness of humans to trees goes on throughout the Bible. Psalm 1 is a great example. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Amazing. And then we get to verse 28, where God gives Adam and Eve the commission to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. And it is that word dominion that I want us to think about this morning. Because as humans, I think, because of our special place in the creation story, it's so easy to see ourselves as being separate from the rest of creation. We see ourselves as sort of overlords or we can do what we want. 
However, if the Genesis story was simply a story of ascending importance, then the creeping insects will be more important than birds. And I know there's a whole lot of you in here that don't like spiders, so that isn't going to be the case, although they're not insects. I can see Darren look at me already. <laughs> so yes, obviously we do have an entirely unique and special relationship with God, but I want to say this. I feel like we need to recapture the essence of our relationship to everything else that God has created. Or we could put it like this. We need to reimagine our place in the community of creation. We need to reimagine our place in the community of creation. Borkham says this. In its own way, the Genesis 1 account of creation is ecological. It stresses the profusion and diversity of living things and it portrays the creation, animate and inanimate, as an interdependent whole. Humans belong integral Integrally to that interdependent whole, they are essential to the, to the design of the whole, but so are the other parts of creation. The view, which was common in much of the Christian tradition, that the rest of creation was created for the sake of humans, finds no support in the text. It is within that context of creation, as an interdependent whole, that we need to understand the special role that they are undoubtedly given. So our role as those people made in the image of God on earth needs to be viewed through the community of creation. We are fellow members of God's creation. You cannot listen to Psalm 104 and come to any other conclusion. God created the earth for the benefit of everything in it. We are part of that community. And if you're in community, you don't just take, take, take or use, use, use. You don't do whatever you want. You try and live in balance and harmony. This church is a community, a wonderful community. And we live our lives to benefit the other people in this community, to serve and bless them. Borkham says this, All creatures exist for God's glory, and we most effectively learn to see other creatures in that way, to glimpse, as it were, their value for God that has nothing to do with their usefulness for us when we join them in their own glorification of God. We are called to enjoy nature for nature's sake. We are called to do everything we can to reduce our impact on nature for nature's sake. To glorify God in what he has created. The language God used to commission Adam and Eve spoke very much of the role of a gardener. And it was in fact a garden no less that they were commissioned into. My wife, Hannah, and I, we, we quite like to garden. We don't really know what we're doing, but, you know, you learn through trial and error. And we've put a lot of effort into the two houses that we've owned in our marriage to, to work on the garden. The first uh, house we bought was just everything about it was overgrown, the house as well as the garden. And uh, so we had to hack everything back, cut the trees back, cut the grass back. The, the people that used to live there, she used to tie the plants up with her old tights which was quite horrifying. So we used to have to get rid of them. Uh, and so once we'd cleared everything away, we then set about gardening, building veg boxes, planting new plants. And then in the second house that we now live in, it was the opposite. All there was was grass, just lawn. So we dug borders in, veg boxes in, planted trees, uh, do our best to try and grow things. And I know many of you will do the same. And we know that that process of gardening involves working with the land, not against it. You need to nurture a garden, feed it, water it, break up the soil, dig in nutrients, deal with pests. 
So just as God commissioned Adam and Eve to be the gardeners of the world, we still hold that commission today to nurture and care for creation that he breathed into life. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we need to reimagine our place in the community of creation. And I actually want to take it one step further in my final point. Because I also think there is another deeply biblical precedent for our relationship to creation. And that's Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. He was the culmination of God's plan. He was all the fullness of God in human form, the Bible tells us, and the radiance of the glory of God. So Jesus gives us the perfect example for how we should live as humans, as he too was fully human. And the Bible tells us that the whole of creation, everything in it, was created and is sustained by Christ. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Isn't that amazing? All things were made through Jesus. Colossians 1 says this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that amazing? God is telling us here that all things, all things hold together in Christ. All things were made through him and for him. So next time you watch one of those amazing David Attenborough documentaries, there's been so many, you can sit there and you can say, this was made for Christ. This incredible display of nature that some cameraman sat in a tent for 18 months to film for our enjoyment, this was made for Christ. You know, if we were a bit Pentecostal, I might get an amen there, but never mind, let's keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Don't push it, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's still a bit early, isn't it? The beauty of the natural world that Psalm 104 describes was made by Christ, made for Christ, and is held together by Christ. So I don't know if you're sat here this morning, and maybe you just need to broaden your vision for how big Christ is. Ephesians tells us that Christ right now is filling the entire universe with himself. So maybe you've got a really big vision of Christ already, but I'm telling you, it can still get bigger. We can still broaden our vision of Christ. And we cannot claim to love Christ, yet at the same time abuse what belongs to him. We cannot separate our relationship to creation and our relationship with Christ because the Bible tells us it was made by him, made through him, and made for him. The glory of the world is there for Jesus. 
So much we could look at on this topic, but there's a little detail in Mark 1 that I love. So Jesus is beginning his ministry. No other of the gospel writers include this detail, but he's driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And it says this, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now he wasn't on a little safari trip. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So he's with Satan, the angels, and wild animals. That's some dinner party. So why was this? Well, as Jesus began his ministry on earth, he came to establish his relationship to all three. He came to establish his relationship to all three. Borkham says this, Why must Jesus go into the wilderness? Because as we have seen, The wilderness is the non-human sphere. It is there that Jesus will meet three categories of non-human beings, Satan, the wild animals, and the angels. And he has to establish his relationship as Messiah to all three before he can embark on his mission in the human world. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve betrayed God and turned their back on him. And in doing so, they lost the authority God had given them. And they invited Satan into the world. And they also were set to working the earth. And Jesus had to come and restore that relationship. Jesus, you could say, is the last Adam. That's how Paul refers to him. Jesus is the last Adam. And he came to restore the relationship to nature, to Satan, that we lost when we turned our backs on him. In Isaiah 11, there's an amazing vision of what one day Things will be like. And Jesus came and showed us what it will look like. Isaiah 11 says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. Jesus came to restore our relationship to the world as well as to each other and as well to God. So why don't the band come up, if that's okay? And we're going to move into a little bit of response and I want to ask you this morning as we sit here maybe there's a particular place that you love to go in creation maybe it's Northumberland, the Lake District the beach, maybe it's just sitting in your garden and let's ask ourselves this, do we need a fresh vision of the Lordship of Jesus over the world around us do we need to have a fresh revelation that everything around us was created for Christ. All of nature, all of creation, created by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. So why don't we stand as we just begin to respond? And let's invite the Holy Spirit to come. There's obviously there's a whole ton of practical things we can talk about when it comes to caring for creation but in this moment I don't want to do that I want us just to ask the Holy Spirit to come and just open our eyes afresh to Jesus and where he stands at the head of creation the firstborn that same passage in Colossians goes on to say he is the head of the church the body 
So Father, this morning we pray that you would come and give us fresh eyes to see 